Who let the dogs out? I love dogs. I love dogs, too. Glad we're all on the same page. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to the Sarah Andreco Show. Hey, everyone. It's Sarah. Thanks so much for joining this show this morning. My guest today is Dr. Sally Foote. She is the past president of the American Veterinary Society of Behavior, one of my favorite organizations, and she provides a lot of continuing education and content that you can take advantage of surrounding low-stress veterinary care. She's an author for fear-free certification, and she happens to have some pretty impressive gentle cat wrangling skills, which I'm very envious of because I cannot replicate. So we're going to get into some of the things that Dr. Foote does and provides, but as a veterinary community and veterinary supporting staff community, it's important to know that she is an excellent resource for continuing education. So we'll talk about that as well. So good morning to you and welcome, Dr. Foote. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you for inviting me, Sarah. This is really nice to be able to meet virtual. Wish it was real, but maybe we'll get there soon. <laughs> it is 2021. Right. Maybe sometime later this year, hopefully, yeah. when all this COVID stuff blows over. It's been a wild ride for 2020. I think everyone's happy just to be done with that, at least. Yeah. So I want to kick us off by getting right into something that you mentioned to me the other day that I found to be completely startling. And I think it's really important that we discuss this topic as soon as possible. But you threw a statistic my way that came out from the Merck New Dog Owner Survey that showed um, 73% of new dog owners in this population uh, are considering surrendering their dog after the stay-at-home quarantine or ordinance, rather, is lifted. And that that stopped me in my tracks because we can hardly get 73% of any population to agree to anything, let alone something like this. So um, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about this study, how the data was collected, you know, how many people were surveyed, and then maybe we can kind of look at now that we have this information, what are we going to do with it? Right. Um, I, you know, first of all, the, the survey was published, uh, believe at the end of November. And I, you know, frankly, I hadn't seen it come across any of my various feeds or whatever. And it was when I was, I was talking to another veterinary publishing company about, you know, doing some blog posting for them and publishing that they said, I think 2021 will be the year of behavior because of what we're finding from the survey. And so I found it and I read it and my jaw dropped and I just said, whoa, I've got to start you know, talking about this and, and making other veterinary and shelter professionals aware of this. So I did do a, um, a Facebook Live. It's on my YouTube channel. You can watch it where I'm going over the main points of that survey. And what it, the survey showed was, yeah, 73. Per, so the survey, as best as I could tell, you know, from the white paper, because I could not get into the survey. The survey is closed. I did talk to Dr. Royal from the Merck uh, Veterinary you know, Corporation, like about the survey and she she was she's someone involved in it and gave me a little bit more history. But basically, Merck went to various like Instagram, Facebook groups, et cetera, of pet owners who've been in the veterinary been been to the veterinary clinic as well as I think shelters and you know had this survey to say like this is you're a new dog owner, you just got a dog now here in 2020, and you know these various questions about like how is life going. And that's where they came up with some of these numbers. And the 73% were saying that, and as new dog owners, this includes people who, who may have, have a purebred dog they purchased, not just animals that are adopted from the shelter. It's a mixed group. And anyway, that the 73% said they were considering rehoming or surrender, a surrender of the dog if the pandemic end. And then the reasons for it, the leading reasons were 38% we're surprised at the amount of activity the dog had, like how many walks they needed and how much attention the dog needed. That was something they just didn't really realize with the ownership of a dog. And even though they're at home, you know, might have been working from home and had maybe the time, still the demand to do it, right? And then that um, that 33% of the people who said why would you know why they were considering rehoming the dog, it was for this reason. So one third of the people who are considering rehoming the dog, it was because of just the high activity level of the dog. You know, I wonder if a lot of these people had brought puppies in to begin with, too, because bringing in a puppy is a lot different than adopting an adult dog. So I'm curious to know what percentage of that survey population had uh, yeah. bitten off a little more than they could chew as a first time dog owner with all of the needs of a puppy or if, if there's a decent slice that are adult dogs, too. 
Right, exactly. And when I talked to Dr. Royal, there's another division in Merck, an animal welfare division with another veterinarian in charge of that. And she really did not know the details of like, were we asking also about age, you know, and age groups with also then these responses. And, um, and that's fine. You know what I mean? This is like the first out of the box because this was the year of empty out the shelters, right? Everybody adopt a dog. And I recall I was on a, on a podcast with a sh uh, shelter veterinarian, a prominent shelter veterinarian, myself, and then um, another veterinarian, you know, on kind of a group podcasting at the uh, beginning of this. And, and the topic was about, you know, now everybody's home and uh, many of them are getting pets. Is this good? You know, emptying out the shelter. Now, what might this have an impact on behavior? And frankly, I always kind of had this guarded view because I felt that we may have many of these animals in shelters, they have an underlying behavior problem that may not be showing up in the shelter. You didn't get the history when they were you know, surrendered to the shelter. And then the shelter staff may not have had the time because we've got to get them out of here to either recognize it in the theater. It may not show in the shelter. It may not show until they get in a home. So we need to, we need to be heavily supporting these families who've adopted for this adoption to keep them in the home, like almost daily calls in that first month, how's it going? You know, with activity, et cetera. And not all shelters are set up for that. You know, that is not a part of it. And so in a sense, as I found this, I frankly wasn't very surprised. I'm not saying I know everything, but I just mean, even, even non-pandemic years, that high activity is a leading complaint for many people, like you said, who get a puppy at six months of age, right? He's barking, he's jumping up, et cetera. So now we have an increased amount of dog ownership and especially a shelter, you know, dogs who may not have had foundational time, you know, for any like screening working with. So um, anyway, that's, that's like a big behavior impact. And then other things in that survey that, you know, let's just say it, that these new dog owners were complaining about was, um, 35% were complaining about like the, the hurdle, as it was said, to give flea and tick protection, to give flea and tick medication. Yeah. And that um, the 50, like just, and then also kind of the mismatch of, I thought I knew, you know, I thought I knew how to keep my pet protected from fleas and worms, et cetera. 57% thought they did, but then they're finding out, no, I really have to give, say this, Heartworm preventative monthly or um, keep up, you know, with the flea and tick pill or medication every month, every three months to prevent them from picking up, you know, these parasites, which then can cause disease. So like the mismatch of what people thought they knew and understand their pets needed and what their dogs needed and what they really needed was other things that, you know, came out. Now, the good news is something like over 70% said that they would welcome and want to have more, um, like more information to know how to keep their dog healthy and prevent, like prevent disease and problems. So they, they want that. They're not giving up on these dogs. It's just where they are right now. There's a level of like frustration, you know, and a level of, uh, wow, I didn't know what I was getting into. And so with that, <clears throat> I feel that's where our role as veterinary staff and shelter staff comes in to help intervene. We've got to, we have to find ways to reach out to them because they not be, may not be reaching back to us because they don't realize the information we might have, the resources we might have and how we're there to help. Yeah, and I see part of the problem being too is that it's good to know where owners are right now and that they're still in this willing stage and this willing phase because it just, you know, from my own personal experience and looking at the shelter side of things, most of the time when people are looking to surrender or they're um, reaching out for behavior help, it's when they've reached the end of their rope and they're yes. at their wits ends and they lack the motivation to actually put yes. a behavior modification plan into place or, or actually follow through with a training plan that they might get from an advanced trainer or something. So it's good to know that these people are still in this state of mind to where we brought this animal in, we want to do the right thing. We just need some help. We don't really know what we're doing. And I find that super common. And I wish there was a lot more education out there about what you're getting into when you adopt a new animal. Um, from the nonprofit perspective, we used to go into the high school and teach at-risk youth about dog ownership, prevention, care, you know, disease, um, responsible dog ownership, compassion, what it means to be a sentient being, what their needs are, how to meet them and why it's so important, uh, what to do in the event of a dog attack and bite. But just in that one little program, these kids knew nothing about anything about anything when it came to 
the life of a different species, a dog in particular. This isn't education that people get anywhere else. You know, right. you move out of your parents' house, you might've had a dog growing up, but then yep. you're out on your own and we're like, oh, let's get a dog. We'll add a dog to the family. You know, just bring it in and it'll be a part of the family and we're good to go. Well, look at all these expenses that are associated. I have to give it heartworm and flea preventive every year. It could become deathly ill or fleas can invade my home and become a real problem. Or, mm-hmm. you know, just some of the upkeep. Most of that information I feel like is still not necessarily well known. I feel like people are looking for that information after the fact. So how can veterinarians, veterinary practitioners, shelter staff try to um, be proactive rather than reactive in that to where they're able to provide some of this information to adopters prior to that adoption? And then like you talked about as well, having that checkback system and knowing what that checkback system looks like to fully support the people that are adopting from your shelters or fully support your clients that have newly adopted, you know, that, that cute little puppy that, you know, is going to be a handful for them to make sure they're, they're getting their needs met and they're in touch with the right professionals and resources to help them through that. So they don't see these problematic behaviors arising. And if they do, you know, there's hope for that. Right. So a proactive approach rather than a reactive approach post-adoption And I presented this actually at the Illinois State Veterinary Medical Association's virtual conference this November in 2020. Uh, It's a presentation I do called Rescue My Rescue. And um, what I presented is, you know, the three leading, the three, there's four leading behavioral reasons why dogs are surrendered to shelters. Primary, really the most common is separation anxiety. The second one is interdog aggression, housemate dog aggression. One's been fighting with the other dog and they get rid of the most, most aggressive dog. Okay. The third one would be aggression toward humans or high fear anxiety toward humans that, you know, is just bad. And then the last one is house soiling. House soiling is really like less than 20% now. And, and then with our cats, you know, we have um, intercat aggression and house soiling. Those are the two common ones for cats. So in this presentation, I said, you know, listen, even if this animal doesn't come in with the history to the shelter, and the animal does not show these problems in the shelter because the shelter may be very regulated for you're in a run, you get fed twice a day, we let you out, there's lots of consistency and lots of predictability, and we have people who are knowledgeable about animals. So none of this shows up, or maybe even in the foster home also, we have a very good foster home that is very, you know, routine and regimented, and then they go to the house. And in the, if all the adoption papers say like, well, he doesn't like it when kids reach for him, that's not very specific enough. And it's not, it's not setting up a plan for exactly how we bring, how we integrate this dog into the home. Exactly like where should he sit? Where should he be when people come in? And all, you know. So what in my presentation is I address from a proactive plan, let's assume they have these problems and how are we gonna set them up to reduce or prevent the relapse of these problems. And, and so with that, you know, I, I go through that and it's very, it's very direct and very simple. And I have handouts on my website, like the top 10 ways to add a dog to your home. Top 10 ways to add a dog to your home, you know, especially if you may have an existing dog, are the two dogs are going to be fed completely separately in separate rooms. Immediately reduces the food aggression, any competition, or, you know, if people may make this dog stressed, right, to show food aggression. And that becomes the routine. Uh, all, you know, things like this, you know, all dogs are going to be, we're going to positively reward them for staying six feet away from the dining room table or any human with food. That's going to become the default. When humans want to lay in the bed or sleep on the bed or sit on the couch, we're going to call the dog off and reward him and have him go to his bed. That's what, you know, resource guarding is biggie. But anyway, so this is how in a succinct way with handouts and you include things like the canine ladder of aggression, my feline ladder of aggression as part of your little handout packet right? I think that feline ladder of aggression I have on my website and then the body language posters from Cattle Dog Publishing, you know, of the feline anxiety and canine anxiety, and then Dr. Kendra Shepard's canine ladder of aggression. Those four handouts must be in every veterinary practice little packet because we're not saying your dog is aggressive. I mean, all dogs will show aggression. This is normal behavior. That concept right there is not even known. And that one chart, you know, with the ladder, even to just be aware that, oh, if he's growling, he could go to a bite. Let's get away, get him away from what he's growling at or get what he's growling at away from him right there and prevent a bite and brings an understanding of, okay, we'll just not have 
uh, have the family eating popcorn and pizza, sorry, with the dog laying under their feet between the coffee table and the sofa, because that's yeah. where it falls, right? I mean, that in itself can literally save a dog's life. And so that's the kind of approach, meaning have those handouts. And if we have any history, it needs to be specific like that to the adopter. And then that copy with the owner should be told, give this copy to your veterinarian as well when you go in for your checkup. Now we'll know. So this way we can support what's preventative for the behavior problem in the home. And we may be prepared for handling at the office, right? <laughs> right, indeed. Well, and I think um, potentially some practices are kind of overwhelmed, like, oh, we have to provide yes. this information and that information, but you don't have to recreate the wheel. Kind of like you mentioned, these resources are already available. You just have to pull them down off the site and use them. But aside from distributing them to um, owners that you think are getting a new puppy or might be candidates or just recently got a new dog, pushing things like this out from an educational perspective through your client newsletter, on your Facebook yeah. page, right. on your Instagram page, like you there's so it. much power. Yeah. And having somebody dedicated to that social media presence to where you're pushing this education out. So, you know, if they're not getting a new dog, they might not see it the first time, but then it might trigger or they might see the next piece of information that you put out there to like, oh, wait, there are resources available to me. Let me check with my veterinarian on this or let me go back and read that newsletter they sent about it. So not just targeting people that they think could be potential candidates for new adoption, exactly. but also filtering this information out from an educational perspective to their whole audience. I think that's another thing too, that you brought, you're bringing up some good points about um, broadcasting this information in a much broader way, leveraging our newsletters, our Facebook, our Facebook pages, our websites, our Instagrams, you name it. But also let's not like, let's look at this as <clears throat> like Knowledge everybody should, everybody should have this knowledge. We are not basing sharing this knowledge on a judgment, you know, or a problem. Again, going with a proactive right. approach to say, like saying every dog should have, every dog and a cat should have a rabies vaccination. Why? Because they go out on walks and they're getting exposed to raccoons, skunks, and foxes, you know, or there's a potential your cat may go out or even if a cat just goes on, still there's that and rabies is not treatable. So therefore everybody should get it. I'm not making a judgment on you. You know, and I don't have to figure out how much exposure does this animal get. That as a as a blanket recommendation, you know, is a good health recommendation. Every animal should eat a diet, you know, made by a qualified and certified company, right? Um, so in the same regard, handing and giving to client these body language posters and these say ladders of aggression and almost it's you know, or like ladders of panic, et cetera, you know, that is that is just fundamental information one should have just because it, it's a part of life with an animal. And this is, and we also have to normalize, we have to normalize the behavior discussion. Yes. When we talk about behavior. It is not only because the behavior is bad and we have to, we have to just bring up one of my favorite questions when I had my brick and mortar general practice, I sold it about a year ago because now my focus is all on educating, speaking, CE, you know, publishing anyhow was, which so all of us out here are very excited about, by the way. <laughs> but you know how? Yeah, like you said, how do I how do I keep my keep myself on schedule, not overwhelm myself or my staff with those history taking? Yet get to the point. So I found the question of, is there anything your pet's doing that's driving you crazy? Was a question that would bring out then, if there was even a very early problem, that then we could get some interventional advice or that those interventional handouts, like okay. Just your cousin moved in with his dog, and now your dog keeps growling at him when the new dog is laying on his bed. And while there's been no fights, we've got a brewing problem. So now I'm going to hand them the top 10 ways they add a dog to the home and say, look, follow these 10 steps. All right, please do this. It's going to show how each dog has their own bed. But anyway, it keeps it simple, keeps it straightforward. Thank you for telling me that because this could go into a fight and we don't want it to get there. So that's how it would bring those things out. And then we had a, you know, we had a file box. I was old fashioned. We kept those things printed out. And, and as I was at, like either I was asking the question or the tech was asking the question and they started to get that answer. They knew, pull out this handout. This is what, please just follow this. Start with this. Start with this and yeah. the question just so you can recognize it. Okay. So it kept it short, kept it sweet, but they walked away with a tool that they could really use and it simplified the process so we weren't overwhelmed. And that's what I, that's the kind of content I like to create, you know? 
you're on the ground and running and it's something that the client can also understand. You know, it's written where the client can absorb it and utilize the information. Yeah, the easier it is to distribute and the less it's disruptive to the practice to the day because most you know, veterinary supporting staff are already overwhelmed and very busy. A lot of them suffer from compassion fatigue and burnout. But um, the one thing that I want to mention in all of that is, is you mentioned the word judgment. And I really want to take a moment to focus on that because um, from the perspective of veterinary staff, oftentimes there's so much judgment on these new owners and they can see it as kind of an attack. Oh, my dog has these problems and I should be ashamed of that. Whereas it is just an open discussion about behavior. Lots of dogs have behavioral problems. It's almost normal to have behavioral problems. So it's something to know in the veterinary practice is these owners don't know. You know, this survey gives us so much information about that. And it's very brand new and modern and up to date and current. So from a veterinary perspective, understand that these owners are ignorant and that's okay. And it is your job to educate. You're there for the health and the well-being of the animal that's in your care, of your client's dog, whether that's mentally, physically, and, and everything combined. So just take a breath, take a step back and understand that these owners don't know what they're doing and that's okay. And the last thing you want to do is make them feel ashamed of that or make them feel like they didn't do their job in researching all this information, or they have no idea that um, heartworms are transmitted by mosquitoes and not through the gut, like the other worms, you know, that, that we have. So it's important to take time with them and educate them and make them feel comfortable about coming to you with these problems, because if you are judgy towards them, if you make them feel bad about them not knowing something in particular that a, a behavior is problematic, they're not going to come to you with it. They're going to shut down and they're going to end up potentially surrendering their pets when you could have been aid to that. I think another thing to also point out, and I would include shelters in this, is are you a transactional practice or are you a relationship-centered practice? Are you yes, a transactional shelter? Your focus is, let's get them adopted. Let's get them adopted. Yay, we had so many adoptions. But are you maintaining the relationship with that adoptive family? As a veterinary practice, is your focus only on how high your average transaction is and how how many appointments you had that day and how high your average transaction is? Or is it more on the client retention and the overall health of this animal and the maintenance of that animal's health and welfare in that home. It's, it's a big difference because when you have a relationship-centered practice, these are the clients, oh my gosh, I've experienced this. And I was talking to my, a friend of mine in Connecticut, a veterinarian, where you know my client may have moved to Georgia. And two years later, that client is calling me for helpful advice on her pet. She had a good, she had a good vet in Georgia, yet she was, wasn't getting the explanation. It was like, get in, you, you do all these tests, you go out, you got seven pages and nobody's explaining anything. So she called me to say, Dr. Foote, I need you to help me just understand what's going on with my pet. And the reason why she called me was because she still felt she had a relationship with me. And that is, there are, there are two types of practices, you know, there really are. And if you have a transactional practice, that's where they're going to find the biggest challenge to trying to incorporate things like behavior and less stressful veterinary care and doing this proactive approach because that's all about relationship building, what I just said, you know? And um, now, you know, people are what they are, okay? Their business model is what their business model is. And maybe the transactional practices can find support from some other more relationship-based, excuse me, I talk, a professional to help their clients, or even if just out to the public, say someone like myself, well, go to Dr. Foote's website, she can help you out with this. Yeah, I can, you know, even having that, if you are a more transactional-based type shelter, like we we take in 7,000 animals a year, we want to get at least 5,000 adopted, and it's hard to maintain your volunteer staff and so on because of the burnout. Okay, then you guys put maybe on your, uh, who, who subcontract or just recommend to your clients, I want you to go to this website and use these forms and then maybe, you know, to help you with this. That would be a step in the right direction, even if you're not going to change the culture of, you know, your, your workplace. Yeah, it is being able to outsource that for sure, because some people, again, being overwhelmed in the veterinary practice are already like, we have so much going on and to deal with, but at least you have this resource, at least you can still support your client even if you aren't supporting your client in-house. 
And, you know, when you, when you talk about transactions too, I've got to lump the rescue groups in this category as well. I'm very familiar with a lot of rescue organizations that have two cutoff points where responsibility almost ends. One is when they get them out of that shelter. Okay, we got them in house and then they forget about them. <laughs> you know, how, what are their behavior needs, be, needs being met? What kind of food are they on? Are they getting their routine veterinary care? Do you, are you checking in with your fosters on a regular basis? And then there's the other step to that too, where once they're adopted, they're out and gone. Okay, we got that number. We got that check. We got that tick. And that follow-up is so critical. Um, with the, the dogs that we had adopted out through the American Pitbull Foundation, we had a post-adoption training requirement if you adopted a dog from us, you were required to set, you could pick any trainer you wanted, any behavior professional you wanted, but you had to do something to start building that bond and have a place to go if you had questions. And so I think that's a really important piece, but for all the veterinarians, um, for all the practitioners that work with rescue groups, most of them have a select number of rescue groups, private rescue groups that they work with too, is having that conversation with them. Um, Cause some of those patients will transfer from that group actually to your practice. But even if yeah. they transfer to another practice, having those resources available via adoption packet, just via connections, contacts, um, just so that they know what to do and they're not likely to end up returning that animal or dumping right. it at the shelter because they're ashamed and they don't want to call the rescue group. So having that relationship with those organizations that you work with in your practice to make sure those are also not transactional and that you're behaviorally supporting those animals as well, I think is really important. Yeah, and I would like to also add that there is such a range in these rescue shelter organizations with what money they have and what kind of staffing they can have. I mean, I live in a rural Illinois county of 20,000. That's small. My, I'm in the county seat that our town population is 4,500. We have a basic municipal shelter. That's what we have. And they do do initial like vaccinations. They've contracted with the local veterinarian for very basic veterinary care. But I can tell you, we have two employees in that place mm -hmm. for a seven day a week, you know, full day, every day, because that's what it requires for animal care and upholding the law in the state of Illinois. So they don't have the money or the bandwidth or employee with themselves to do much outreach yet. Our local humane group has done some help. And, and again, if the veterinarians now know like, okay, I've got this little packet, like your rescue, my rescue, like these are the common things, you know, follow these handouts. I've collected it together between Dr. Foot, Fear Free, Cattle Dog, or even like under my suggestions of what to put together between the veterinarian or even that shelter staff can say, here you go, at least follow this. That's something, okay? That probably can be done. And that is better than, you know, not and not knowing where to start either. Now, other places like San Francisco, you know, the SPCA has four reported veterinary behaviorists on staff. That place yeah. is some job, but that's San Francisco. That's a whole share in central <laughs> Illinois, believe me. <laughs> so it's not a judgment. And I hope that nobody listening to this podcast feels as if there's any criticism on the smaller, say, shelter rescue, that is a bit transactional because in their community, it may be a factor of, we, you know, we're really so happy just to get them underneath a roof and a home, and we only have two of us to work here. That's the best that we can do. Okay, and now, but this, these are ways that you can partner with, even if it's not a vet in your community, somebody who's online like myself or yourself, to give, you know, give that added bit of help to help, let's stop that 73% that may be coming back at us in 2021. Yeah, I agree with you. Something is always better than nothing. At least provide them a resource, even if it's outside of your facility, outside of your wheelhouse, that they can actually go to to seek that help if needed. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit too, because I think uh, one thing that I wanted to talk to you about in particular is documenting behavior. So in the medical practice, you know, your, your veterinary technician or your veterinary nurse or assistant walks into the room or now curbside on the phone yeah. um, and they, they gather all their information, their background information, their history, their TPR, you know, you get your temp, your pulse, your respiration, and what are they eating? Um, you know, are they microchipped? Let's scan your microchip and see if it's there. But how many practices are, are actually asking about behavior? Do you even have a baseline? I mean, oftentimes what I see um, in medical files is caution, will bite, muzzle, yeah. you know, things like that. Very indescript 
terms that we're just used to. <laughs> I feel like they come from the old school stickers. Um, mm -hmm. I'm definitely old enough for this, but some people may not be listening to where we had the files where we'd stick the, the caution yeah. sticker on their file. And I feel like that just translated right into digital files to where we're still using the same little sticker, but we're not being descriptive enough. We're not providing a baseline. So what about adding some things to the TPR sheet, the physical exam sheet that um, can be very helpful and can kind of develop that without um, causing too much work uh, in, in addition on the side of the, the nurse or the practitioner, because in the long run, that's going to help, obviously, not only with handling skills in the veterinary practice, but if the owner is starting to see any problems arise, they can go back through that behavioral history and say, ah, mm, yes, here we have this, or we noted that, or this is where they asked about this. Here's the resource that we provided. Did it pan out? Did it not? Like, where's a good place for practitioners to start when trying to implement more of a behavior baseline in their own practice without overwhelming the staff? Well, I think um, naturally things like, you know, formal educational, you know, continuing ed courses and CE are the best place to start because then you know it's not based on anybody's, well, this is what I've learned over 20 years based on my, just my own personal kind of things, you know, there's more structure, et cetera. Um, things like, you know, the fear-free certification program, the low-stress handling certification program are excellent, uh, especially low-stress handling, because that is focused on the handling. And that's really, I think, what you're getting at is when I've got to put my hands on that animal or technician needs to, you know, nurse needs to put their hands on that animal for the exam, for the weight, et cetera. We need to not only be able to read the body language and read the behavior and note it, but when we know, we need to know how we adapt to make it better for the animal. Okay, so that's the whole level. But at the very basic, basic level, if you're not, you know, you, you and some of my like my five essential low stress handling, you know, skills for the feline, the five essential, and that's where on those that I created my own CE was I found that out of these programs, listen, you know, like 80%, 90% of the time we're using these five techniques for everybody, and it takes care of all of them, like makes the makes the day great for them and us. So I, let's boil it down to that, and that makes it. It gives you that baseline that everybody knows, you know, they're educated on and the specific tools like like my, one of my techniques, my top one technique is you post on the wall in the exam room, the treatment area, the kennel area, everywhere there's an animal and a person to touch them or be around them, the ladder of aggression and the body language of fear for the canine and the feline and small animal practice. Because that tool right there is where everybody's going to be speaking, all of your handlers, the same language. I don't want to hear, well, he's just upset today. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> exactly. You know, it's like saying he's hot. Well, how hot? What's his temperature? But instead, if on that, and on that medical record, it can be noted, growling, staring, growling and staring, refusal of food. Those three things right there, then will tell me as a veterinarian, okay, he's already up at aggression. And so therefore, if he needs care today, we are going to we are going to need to either try to use what I call my dancing around threshold technique, but anyway, a way to either get injectable or the, have the or, owner do an oral transmucosal medication. If the owner can slip this in their mouth, wait a half an hour before we ever touch him. I can make that now. I can immediately triage. So that's those are some of the ways. Those are some of the ways, and I think it's really important that we are using. Um, like things like we're using that same language. What I used in my office, I, I created, it's called a Bella Behavior Medical Record System. And on every patient record, and this didn't have to be rescored every time, quite frankly, for many of these animals, it was like their baseline behavior when they would, and how we were conditioning it positively. And then it notes, what are their you know rewards, place of exam. And if we needed to use say like pheromones, pre-veterinary pharmaceuticals, or even tools like a muzzle or hooding, you know, to hide the trigger that was there and it was concise. And so um, this is just kind of, I was old school, but anyway, like showing, you know, so I, you know, being more advanced, we focused on the do's. And as I've developed this with other practices, I have both, this is the animal's do's, like what you want to do for this animal to provide a less stressful care. And on the other side, we have the don'ts, like don't ever do this. All right. This, and then this becomes, something all of the staff sees. And so in I, uh, you know, I have ways to adapt this for the electronic records. And on my old fashioned, you know, paper record, this literally sat on the front sheet. 
just like an allergy trigger, you know, epileptic or do not use this anesthetic, you know, boom, big words. It's very clear what to do or not to do. So this, this way we had consistency with handling. It was a job requirement for my staff to follow, hmm, let's just say your, your pet, uh, your cat needed a cowl, no scruffing, right? So we're going to use a cowl because we needed to have a handle on your cat and loved like ham baby food. And that would be checked off here and the cowl would be sprayed with feel away. Those three things would be checked off here. And before touching that animal as part of the doctor, the nurse communication or assistant to you know, the examiner, let's say that, because in some clinics it's the more, it's the um, another technician, you know, doing vaccinations or blood draw. They would say to the handler, if they don't see the cowl, like, he's the cowl, I'm not touching him. You know, you we have to follow this so that the animal then is learning, the care is consistent, and that's what reduces the stress for the animal every time. And honestly, when on the first exam, because because of your bit, you have to have that base knowledge, right? From like the top, this is a part of the top five low stress handling. Uh, low stress care techniques in my CE. But anyway, from those top five, meaning, okay, I'm clearly reading the body language. I've, I've eliminated some of the triggers and I'm seeing the response. I can score this right away because there's like a one plus to four plus. So, you know, what's really like a valued reward. Anyway, I can quickly write this up on the first exam. So by the second exam, everybody follows this we had some animals, a lot of them were not on any medications. Like they came to us for the first exam. So we got their stress lower. And even by the second exam, they didn't, they weren't on any medication and they were, they were uh, way less stressed and they were cooperative. They were showing cooperative care because of having this way to document that was concise and simple and you could hold your staff accountable to it. You know, I can't tell you how many times in the first really using this with my staff who was, they were more advanced. They had to, they worked for me. <laughs> and I would say to them, oh, did you get his adaptal? Oh, I forgot. We'll put it on now and I'll be there in 10 minutes. I'm going to go balance the checkbook. I'll make three or four other, you know, so that's how I kept myself efficient. But then I'm holding my staff accountable. It was what helped to get everybody on board and to keep me efficient. And then the staff saw the benefit. So it was all good feedback. Lastly, we could take this, you know what I mean? What makes it good for like, if you had to put eardrops in your cat at home, for example, and you're trying to like, oh, she's so hard to hold. Okay, Sarah, see this little baby blanket we've wrapped around his neck? That's what I want you to do at home as well. You know, and feed him, see how we plop the ham baby food right in front of his face, just as he starts eating. Then we put the drops in. This is exactly how I want you to do it. And we give you this little card. We make one up quick for you or we, let you take a photograph of it so you can refer to it at home. And now you can do the home care that way. So these are the tools I think that help no matter how advanced or whatever your clinic is to be able to use these things without getting terribly overwhelmed and feeling like now I have to become a behaviorist to be able to do this. And that's kind of like the big black hole of behavior, as I say, <laughs> at times in practice, you know? And lastly, uh, you have a way that we're, we're eliminating again, that sort of uh, judging the behavior and what words are we using? We're standardizing this, we're standardizing this. Well, and, and that's an excellent point because medical notes are so important in particular. And I think adding this behavioral component is so very helpful. Here's what we did and it didn't work. Here's what we did and it did work. And so having that that history of that is, is, is so very helpful, especially when your techs are in a hurry, they need to know what they need to do if this patient is coming in for something. So just as much as when you express a dog's anal glands and you're like, oh, the left side was slightly full, the right side was toothpaste and it was really hard to express. Like those things are important to know. So when the next tech comes along and does that. So same thing with behavior. You know, we, we tried, we tried feel away, no effect. Um, patient has PVPs on board, but why? Why does the patient have PVPs on board? Well, last time they were here, these are the behaviors that they exhibited. And not only these are the behaviors they exhibited, but using objective terms, not yes. subjective terms, like friendly, happy, no, stiffening, growling, right. um, soft body, loose body, tense right, exactly. body, like very objective terms so that they're specific, not um, opinionated, I guess would be yeah, the word that right. I'm looking for. Yeah. I think the other thing that helped a lot when in our office, like, I'm not kidding you. It's like, I almost made wallpaper out of the body language posters and the letters of aggression. I'm not kidding you. I had them frame, yes. you know, the cat body language, cat letter of aggression, dog body language, dog letter of aggression frame. 
in the examination room. And I, my clients always came in. I know that was pre-COVID, but I'll just say it was very clear and always out for the clients to see. And, I, and if we didn't remember to ask about behavior, because they were sitting out like this, a lot of times, you know, there's those few moments, like those 30 seconds where you're typing in the computer and the client's looking at that chart going, well, that's how he looks all the time when the grandkids come over. <laughs> So the client volunteers behavior information to you, even if you haven't remembered to prompt and ask for it. So that that tends to happen. And even if they're like, but it's not a big deal because they never bit they ain't grandkids. Okay, just just like wash over your head on that last statement, but at least you're not like, okay, dog anxious about grandkids. And then you whip out the top 10 ways to keep pets and kids safe together. It's another hand on the website. But I mean, at least from that one little comment. You got some information, you gave them a resource, and maybe you just quickly type on the medical record, stressed by grandkids, gave a handout, you know? And honestly, that's a lot. You know what I mean? That's a lot of good you've done without adding on a lot of work. Yeah, well, definitely because the behaviors that they're displaying at the veterinary hospital are often different than the behaviors that they're displaying at home. But if they look at that poster and they're like, oh, my dog's like this all the time, or what you're seeing in the room is what my dog is like all the time, or this is an extreme difference from how they are at home and here's exactly. why, or they've never you know, shown any aggression towards other dogs before, but coming in the lobby, oof, you know, we had this altercation with this little Yorkie that was on a retractable leash or something like that. Yeah. So being able to prompt the client when they wouldn't otherwise know to tell you those things can really be a starting point, um, especially with puppies. You know, we're, we're talking about people adopting all these puppies. And one of the things I noticed you, you posted on your Facebook page, I think it was this morning about um, puppies that are under 12 weeks of age that are showing some of these really startling signs of snapping and lunging yeah, and biting guarding, and like food aggression. resource guarding. And this is abnormal behavior. This is not normal for a puppy, but for a new puppy owner that's never had one before, they might not know that. So if they aren't showing you that in the exam room, you might not know that that's happening. So you've got to ask those questions so that you can prompt them and you can say, wait a minute, that's not, that's not normal. We need to help you through this so that this is a temporary problem, not a lifelong problem that you're going to deal with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, I'm a big one on visual. You know, have it if and, and behavior is that it's visual, you know, so have posting up these like posters without necessarily getting too cluttered on your wall, uh, having, you know, handouts that are simple, more infographic. Um, I love it. I love it, too. You could keep it simple, you know, other ideas, tips for keeping it simple for, say, a, a veterinary, you know, during the exam or checkup to ask about behavior, you could, as part of, before you come in for the checkup, could you just take a little video on your phone, like a 30 second video on your phone of your dog playing with the kids or day-to-day life with your dog, that alone. You could look at that 30 second video and pick up very quickly if there's any kind of, cause they'll, they'll take a video probably of the dogs playing together, or, you know, eating, resting on the house or on a walk. They're, they'll find something to do. Okay, who doesn't, who doesn't like showing a video of their pet, right? And in 30, 30 seconds is, is so much less time, you know, than having to ask these questions and make sure they understand. And, and in that, you might be like, okay, looks, hey, this really looks good. And the dog's growling in the vet office. So now it's pretty clear, okay, the vet office really doesn't like. But if you see things in the home and you're seeing them in the office, now you know you've got something to deal with. And lastly, then you could forward that video and put it in your medical record, <laughs> right? That's right. You just forward say, do I have permission to forward this to put, include in the medical record? And they'll probably like, sure, you know? <laughs> So you forward it on and store it up and then you have that, right? And then you've saved a lot of time that way. And again, that's visual. So we're not judging. We're not trying to get descriptions, you know, and accuracy and descriptions. Let the picture tell the story. Yeah, I think that's really important because also when we're looking at things from a team perspective, you know, if you have a dog trainer on board or a behavior professional on board, or you need one on board and you have a veterinarian that's trying to help or work with this or staff that may or may not know much about behavior, you know, you can share those things with each other and really be a part of a team of helping this one individual animal. Yep, exactly. And the other thing I want to bring up too, and you do this, but I feel like it's such an underutilized service with vet to vet consults. Vet to vet consults. I want to stress this. Like the majority of veterinarians out there will do free vet to vet consults. Some some board certified, some non-board certified, but for anybody that, that specializes in behavior, they have a more robust knowledge about behavior in general and can really make your life easier when you're trying to determine what to do or how to do it. So you can have them as an outside resource to say, 
I can't really handle this. I don't want to know what to do with it here. Can you help? But you also have that resource, that vet to vet resource to where I want to learn more about this. I want to implement some of these things into my practice. How do I do that? Where do I get started? And, and you know, can you help me in that direction? So I just want to stress that, that, um, you know, that's something that you offer. And, um, you know, a lot of veterinarians do offer that are, that are focused in behavior, that it's something to, um, uh, take advantage of as far as an opportunity to grow your knowledge, but also have an outside source if you need to really step up your help with something that's going on with one of your clients and their their animal's behavior. Yeah, and I think um, there's like two, a couple different, like, how should I say this, benefits for whether it's a technician or the veterinarian making that call to someone say like myself. The first one, of course, is, oh my gosh, you know, like like one veterinarian called me yesterday highly aggressive dog needing to come in for like probably the rabies of rabies vaccination or something that, you know, you have to come into the veterinarian. We can't skip this over, you know, it's needed. And this, while this animal had been to a veterinary behaviorist was still having, you know, still aggressive. And she said, she told me the uh, pre-exam cocktail, which was very good. You know, normally, normally would have a dog like this out and how, how the the dog was like not even touched by the medications and like a it was perplexing but more b of like oh my gosh we've got to be safe like how do i refuse care because some of this also then blends into the we can't we can't take care of all these cases and now how do i succinctly explain this to the client and then lastly if we need to refer them on like i need to refer them on to somebody who understands when like we need to give care, but how can we be safe? It's that blending of the handling meds or not. And also if they're too aggressive to care for, okay, that concept. That's part of why she called me. And obviously, you know, it's a crazy busy day for this doctor where it's like, we're not going to get into an hour discussion about this case, you know? And I knew I needed to get help her, help her wrap her head around the situation. The very first thing, you know, I said, was, you've done everything right. You've made excellent choices. I think we need to support each other. Even if I could see like, well, I would have done something different. No way. I've been in her shoes, you know, and with what you know right now, you did the right things. And secondly, now I want to help you understand how like the drugs cannot work well with the neurochemistry and the level of agitation and the neuroanatomy possibly of this animal. And then how to explain this in a very direct and succinct way to your client. And if your client's shutting down, doesn't want to listen to you, I could do a telehealth consult with your client, report back to you. And then we're in a three-way you know, a three-way uh, united effort, if you will, team effort on what in the end will be the best result for this family, the situation and this animal. And, uh, and you know, it's a lot of times, sometimes that's coming out. I'm really sorry to take up your time. Like, no, please talk, you know? Yeah. And if I need, if we really need to do like a consult, we'll set it up. That's what I'm here for. We can do this, you know? Because um, I think sometimes, uh, especially for veterinary staff, we feel like we need we need to take care of everybody because we're very caring. And oftentimes behavior is not presented as the chronic health condition it is. Behavior problems that have been established for a long period of time, and maybe genetic, that is a chronic mental health condition, just like epilepsy, similar to diabetes, you are not going to cure this. You're going to manage it. And if some of them are not manageable. And that was the like example I gave to this vet, which he completely understood. You know, you could have a dog who's fine and dandy 90% of the time and goes into cluster seizures 10% of the time. It requires IV, you know, constant rate infusion of propofol to get them through 36 hours to stop the seizures. Well, what is that animal's life like? Right. right. Even if they're on the phenobarb and the Keppra or whatever, potassium bromide to keep them healthy 90%, that 10% of the time matters. So anyway, yes, vet to vet consults, vet to vet tech consults I do, vet to, vet to shelter professional consults I do as well, especially on these difficult cases that are in the shelters and you get conflict within your board for things like behavior euthanasia, you know? So that, yes, I offer that service. <laughs> I think it's good to promote that because again, it's a way of making bridges, right? Building bridges with our, within ourselves and out to the community, the professional community as well. Yeah, I think that's so incredibly helpful, at least 
from a veterinary staff perspective that those resources are out there and available and you don't have to feel overwhelmed or that you have to make every decision. If it's not in your wheelhouse, <clears throat> excuse me, there are plenty of people out there that can help like Dr. Foote. So taking advantage of that can be really a fresh breath of air because you know you don't have to have all of that responsibility on you. There are so many resources that you can either outsource or just get in-house help for just picking a direction. Kind of like you mentioned with you know these rescues that have to make these euthanasia decisions. Sometimes they call their veterinary practice about that too. Um, and I've noticed more and more of this trend, which I'm loving and I hope rescue groups continue to jump on is in order to feel okay about their decision, because that's not their wheelhouse, they bring in a behavior professionalist or a board certified veterinarian or a veterinarian that specializes in behavior to say, you know what, guys, you've done the best that you can. And with all of the resources, the thousands and thousands of dollars that you're going to throw at this animal, and you may be able to manage it, make it a little bit better. You could be putting these resources into, you know, 30 other animals that are going to come out just fine and make really wonderful companions. So helping and making some of those difficult decisions and feeling um, that that responsibility doesn't have to fall on your shoulders if, if that's not your expertise, like being able right. to lean on other professionals for that. Right. So, yeah, I think that's really helpful. So um, the one thing I want to mention too is just, I want you to throw out there a little bit of the continuing education that is available on your site. So people know what some of the fun stuff they can get into in regard to behavior and especially some of the low stress handling care tips that you have and certifications. You know, you have a puppy certification course that I think would be really helpful to veterinarians supporting staff, um, but just some of the stuff that you have available. So as we're going into 2021 and everybody's figuring out, you know, how they're going to fulfill their race credits, um, uh, can you list off some of the things that you have available that they could potentially do that in if they have an interest in behavior in particular? Sure, sure. So um, I, right now my present, the I have a Better Bond, Better Behavior puppy certification course. And what this is, it's a four-hour race approved online um, course to learn about, not only learn about normal and abnormal puppy behavior uh, for the, you know, the puppy that's six weeks of age to one year of age, but then also it includes um, the curriculum for a four-week puppy socialization course. And I also include with that my online, like how my online puppy socialization course, because we're still in like the stay-at-home orders. And um, it also then, so it, part of this is it's not only the, the education, but it gives you an instructor guidebook for the correct, the um, syllabus for the puppy classes and syllabuses so that you can do puppy consults in your practice. And so I give eight, like eight syllabuses for common puppy, you know, puppy behavior problems like the nipping and the jumping, high anxiety, et cetera. Like what are the steps to do typically in this? I also include a year of support from myself to the certified puppy behaviorist on any case or a veterinarian involved in that case. So this way, if say one of the technicians, nurses in the practice becomes certified and we have that, we have that eight week old puppy who's lunging and growling over food and we find out about this and the family says, but we really wanna keep him. And the veteran is going, uh, I know I need to put him on medication or something, but I don't know what, he's only eight weeks old. And the nurse says, well, I'm gonna start at least advising on how we can avoid you know, the triggers. Let's contact Dr. Foote. Yes, that's all a part of that program. Um, I also, I have individual race CE. I have um, the, uh, what I call uh, canine cocktail with drive-by injection, which is, you know, how we handle these highly aggressive ones or in a low, low stress way to be able to receive vaccination or care. And it's a whole different way of handling them. You've got to like how you get, the, how you prepare the environment, how you, and with, with specific uh, tools in there. Or you know how you how you um, get the dog you know, happily muzzle trained or hooding, you know exactly how you verify that the client understands the preparation of the patient, exactly how you prepare, and that two-hour race CE course includes I think ten videos, demonstration videos, including three actual handling cases that you're watching from start to finish successfully, for really how you do it. Um, I have other, and so a lot of it's showing you know, like my behavior cocktails, which are the intervention plans that we're talking about. That's one race hour CV, CE, and that's on the, on the site. Now I also have offered 
live streaming handling uh, labs when we can get back into being really together. We'll do our actual handling labs here in the Bella Behavior Learning Center in Illinois. <laughs> I know we'll get there in 21. I just have faith. Um, but anyway, even in a live streaming handling where this is very interactive, where I will present, there'll be some PowerPoint presentation, but then I go live on camera and I'm showing you with a low stress handling certified assistant with an actual dogs and cats I've never met before exactly how we're say going to do tarsal leg vein, how we, and you, and in that moment, how we're at adapting our approach and using, utilizing like that bell behavior record system so that we, you know, what to do, especially I choose animals that tend to be slightly nervous, not the easy ones, because that's what everybody needs to see. And they may not all have been pre-medicated either, you know, but we, how we keep it low stress, how you immediately triage in that one to two minutes. So, um, what I'm looking forward to, what we're planning on this year, is providing additional um, CE focused on advancing low stress handling and pulling together a couple of these race certified, uh, you know, race certified content, like that seven hour live stream handling day into a advanced certification program. And, um, and that I do have also content available for the client. I have client on demand courses they can take. If they don't make the consult or you're just getting frustrated about it, you can tell them, listen, take that five simple rules for keeping your cat in the box, you know, $20. And it can also save the time in the office. You know, you get that feline inappropriate elimination case. And I was like, oh, I got to talk for half an hour about litter boxes and litter <laughs> sort of thing. You don't have the time for it. You know, say you can even, you know, sell it to them or, you know, say you're going to take this watch it, you can watch it 20 times at home. And it not only saves you time, but you know, they've got this information. So if they come back with problems, they did you do all five steps and you know what the five, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so I, of course, provide behavior consults and that, but that's that's what my uh, CE is. And I'm looking forward to collaborating with some other content providers this year and continuing to grow, you know, this um, this discipline really, less stressful veterinary care. So that's, that's blending, you know, like you're fear-free, you're cooperative, you're low stress handling, and just things out intuitive like myself have been doing for the last 30 years has become a discipline. And I love it. Our anesthesiologists, our pain reducing, you know, pain specialists, uh, our behaviorists that are not in the veterinary field are collaborating and pulling this information together so that it is growing now into a full discipline of how to provide less stressful care and even translating into home care. I know it can be a lot. I know it can be a lot. And sometimes is, is um, whether we're a veterinary professional, shelter professional, or an animal behavior professional, we may be a little more focused, you know, on one pathway of that discipline as compared to another. And that's fine. Because overall, that's still going to continue to grow this and, and make, the, make the life and care experience for our animals much better. Yeah, and you can think about that from a job satisfaction uh, perspective, oh, yes. even because if, oh, if yes. you're a technician, a nurse, an assistant, a vet, and you have a dog that comes in that's slowing, uh, showing some signs of some fear aggression, that's only going to get worse if it's not addressed. And so your job goes from being like, okay, we can handle this. We can deal with this. It's only minor. It's only going to get worse if it's not addressed. So the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth time you see this dog, you're going to see them on the schedule and be like, oh, we're going to get fit today. Yep. You know, so job satisfaction, the more you work with these patients, the more you look at different low stress handling techniques and care of your, of your patients, the easier your job's going to be, the more you're really going to fall back on that. Oh, you get to play with puppies and kittens all day. You know, thing that people say about people in that field, um, but making it more enjoyable for you and seeing the difference that you make and seeing, you know, Sparky that comes in with some minor fear aggression that might be lift flipping a little bit instead of progressing into this dog that just goes completely bananas when you bring him in to see yes. him actually practice some cooperative care. Um, I think that's really important. If, if you think about it from yourself, your own personal standpoint, oh, yeah, you're going to last Absolutely. a lot longer in the field, helping your patients in that, in that way. Yeah, I did a um, bite near bite job stress survey about six, seven years ago, and I published it presented it as a poster presented at the American Veterinary Medical Association Conference in Indianapolis. And I have the white paper published on my um, website under my free resources. And we have a situation of PTSD in veterinary medicine from these patients that have aggressed on us 
And in that survey of some of my questions, one of the questions was, you know, how, how did you decrease your, like your stress, your personal stress level after injury or near injury such that you could continue on and work in this profession? Because some people have left the profession for this reason, or they've mm -hmm. altered, you know, what they, like they only go, they're in feline only practice because the Rottweil almost took their face off. Like they will not touch a dog now because it's too upsetting to them. I, I have had victim interviews like this. Okay. It's real. Anyway. So, but all throughout that survey, and I've got the numbers and the statistics, you know, in that white paper, it was knowledge about behavior, being able to read the body language and knowing the less stressful handling skills. That's what decreased not only the animal's aggression, it decreased my anxiety, my stress, and I knew how to stay safe. Okay. Exactly. And, and the emotional, like the emotional change, I, I, like when I say, I can't tell you, it's me because there's so many, I can't count, you know, over my <laughs> years of speaking and, you know, people come up and ask you questions after a presentation. When I worked for Cattle Dog Publishing and we were at the vendor booth, because it was the company founded by Dr., the late Dr. Sophia Yin on low stress handling, the, the veterans and especially the veteran nurses that would come up to me and say, oh my goodness, Dr. Foote, I took this program and it has literally changed my life. I love my work now. I used to be so stressed and and hated, like didn't like handling the animals because the animals were aggressive or anxious, but I didn't know what to do to make it better. And secondly, I didn't know why I didn't have support for why I should not be continuing, you know, pushing through care, like you'll push through care. And um, now I do. And I, and I see the difference. The animals like me now. One of my technicians said, well, now the dogs like me. So I like my job now. I mean, that, think of that. And, and they just said that it refreshed and renewed them at a time they were coming into burnout. So I think also, as we talk about self-care, you know, wellness, reduction of um, mental health problems in our veterinarian shelter and dog trainer professionals, I mean, all of us in there, yes utilizing knowledge in these less stressful, uh, low, less stressful care and positive reinforcement and cooperative care is pivotal for our own personal wellness. It really is. Yeah. Remember why you got into this to begin with, you know, yeah. chances are you like that relationship that you're able to build with animals. So why not use some of these techniques to your benefit so that you can have that relationship again? It's so easy to get caught up in the hustle and bustle and the daily stress of work that sometimes it helps to just take a step back and go, wait a minute, why am I in this? What do I love? What do I get out of this job? And, and refocus on that and kind of implementing some of these strategies can really help with that. If you're helping the patient, you're developing better relationships with that patient. The owner is much happier because they see that their dog is happy with you and it's a win-win all the way around. And one of the things I want to mention too, um, one of the reasons that I love the idea of the puppy program and veterinary staff taking that is oftentimes veterinarians are like, how can we do more in-house too? Yes. Not too much, not more than we can bite off, but you are building, if you're a relationship, not a transactional type practice, you're building these relationships and these people trust you with a very near and dear family member that they have. And so having a technician or a nurse on board that can help with that puppy piece and help consult with them and give them that needed information can really build some of that trust with your client because you're keeping that in-house. So mm -hmm. they're much more likely to trust the process in the long run. The puppy is going to develop a good relationship with your staff and you're going right. to be able to help them through that process. So I think that's really um, great in terms of developing those relationships and those positive relationships more than anything else and involving the veterinary staff, the supporting staff and, and helping the clients with pieces like those puppy pieces and puppy consults. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's, that was, that was my point of view, you know, cause that's how we did it in my office <laughs> anyway, but that was my point of view in developing this program. It wasn't, it's not an obedience puppy type class. Yeah. There's a little bit that, you know, you learn calm, but it's really focused on socialization, impulse reduction, and decreasing fear and timidness as they're going through these stages. And um, then, and then also it recognizing like that, you know, that over anxious or over impulsive puppy and how, how now we need to blend in the bit, like how we're going to modify that behavior at home, not just in class and work together, you know, 
uh, with maybe supplement and that and, you know, incorporate. And, and then the veterinarian has a little bit of base knowledge as well. You know, so it brings it all together because uh, and keeps it in house, like you said, because it's not like, oh, we don't want them to go to other puppy classes. It's like, no, you know what? A lot of it, it, I hear a lot from the dog trainers. You know, it's like we only get maybe 10 or 20 percent of the puppies who really need to come to puppy class come to puppy class. That's true. Yes. So even from this course, if a clinic doesn't do full puppy classes, their nurses and their doctors, when they're doing their puppy exams, are going to recognize and you know be able to do a less stressful puppy exam, which sets the dog up to be a better dog to come in for adult care. But then secondly, can recognize if that puppy is so timid, he's scared to say to the client, okay, he's really scared. We need to get, say, the adaptal. And I want you to do these exercises at home, like do a quick puppy consult right there, you know? Yep, on the spot. Or just say, schedule with Diane here. I want you to come back at whatever, Saturday afternoon from 1 to one thirty, and we're going to help you with your puppy there, and they pay 40 bucks for that, you know, that's better. And you, and you have that service you can offer. Yeah, that's incredibly helpful. Um, and Dr. Foote, I think my audience is definitely going to agree this entire conversation has been really helpful. Um, I hope people listen to this a couple times and really absorb all the information that was provided in it. I am going to put um, a link to your website and where people can find your continuing education in the show notes below. Also, how to get in touch with you. Um, you have a Facebook page that I think people should jump on and join, ask different questions, get all the information they can out of that, especially if you have a heavy interest in behavior. And that is Foot and Friends. And again, I'll put that link in the show notes below as well. Um, as far as me, you can find me on Instagram at sarah.andreco. And then also feel free to use my other YouTube channel, my non-podcast, non-professional channel for pet parents as a resource for your pet owners as well. I have topics on there from behavior, health, wellness, nutrition, you name it. So you can also utilize that as a resource if you need an outside resource. Um, and don't forget to utilize Dr. Foote's um, website. She's got a ton of handouts that you can put into practice in your own practice to help if you need that for your clients. Those uh, posters that she mentioned about the dog body language, um, and just a lot of really good content and information in particular. So all of that and where to find it will be in the show notes below. Thank you so much, Dr. Foote. This was really, really helpful. And I hope- oh, this Veterinary practitioners, um, supportive staff will feel a little bit relieved, a little bit upbeat about how we're going to tackle this big problem that's probably going to come up here pretty soon in 2021 with dog owners and finding out where they can chew and trying to help them prevent surrendering and really bettering the relationship that they have with their, their current dog that they already have instead of just turning it into someone else and making it someone else's problem and just continuing that vicious cycle. So hopefully they feel a little bit uh, relieved and, and have a sense of hope instead of kind of despair going into what we're sure to see as a spike in some, some behavior cases here in 2021. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, have, I appreciate all that you're doing and, you know, sharing this knowledge, sharing this podcast with people and uh, look forward to maybe talking to you again sometime. That'd be great. Perfect. Thanks so much. And if you have any questions, um, Dr. Foote, if you can take a peek every once in a while, if I can answer them, I will, but feel free to pop your questions in the comment section below and we'll try to get to them as best we can. Thanks so much, everybody.